Welcome to the Change Log episode 0.4.2. I'm Adam Stokowiak. And I'm Wynn Netherland. This is the Change Log Week where it's fresh and new in the world of open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're also on the web at thechangelog.com. We're also up on GitHub. Head to github.com slash explore. You'll find some training repos, some feature repos from our blog, as well as our audio podcast from this year, Diddy. If you're on the Twitter, follow Change Log Show and me, Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. Episode 42. You know what that is. It's the uh, key to life. It's what it's it all the means. the meaning of life. Yehuda Katz, the meaning of life. Absolutely. Fun episode this week. Talked to Mr. Katz about JavaScript and Merb and Rails and Sprout Core. You know, I, I think that uh, he knows a lot, wouldn't you say? He's forgotten more than we've learned, dude. <laughs> I think he's coded more lines of code than I can probably ever look at. You know, it's funny. A couple of years ago at, at Lone Star RubyConf, I think you were there, 08, I was uh, set to give a talk on JavaScript and Ruby frameworks and saw that Mr. Katz was going to be there. And lo and behold, he was going to give a talk on JavaScript and Ruby frameworks. And you didn't want to go in his footsteps, did you? I did not want to play in his shadow. So <laughs> what did I do? I uh, gave a four or five slide homage to, uh, to Mr. Katz in uh, varying degrees of hilarity and then uh, switched over and did a talk on Sprout Core. And wouldn't you know it, he's moved he over now? to Sprout Core. <laughs> Yeah. Crazy. Lucky you or lucky him. One of the I know. two. So I'll have to do another presentation now. He just keeps following my footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun episode. Learned a lot about Rails 3.1 and the roadmap for the new version of Rails. Yeah, you know, I think other people will take more out of this than I will, but uh, the best part I, I personally think of this podcast is uh, when he's talking about uh, SAS versus less. Yeah, I think you were uh, getting all giddy there when he was championing SAS over Oh, us. I was excited. I was totally excited. And uh, I actually had a follow-up call like two days later with one of the uh, contributors to Compass, a sister project to SAS. Uh, I was talking to Brandon Mathis and kind of mentioned a couple things in this podcast that I'll hear. And he was, he was pretty excited about it. Speaking of excited, got some exciting news out of the GitHub. We got some awesome news out of the GitHub. What is it? We are now... Official partners of jobs.github.com. That's true. We are. And we have uh, two awesome jobs that we should, uh, we should talk about. One from Gobbler. Uh, they're a small focused startup that just came out of closed beta. They're making a killer desktop application for the music industry. Think uh, Dropbox plus Lightroom plus you send it. And uh, they're looking for a GUI desktop application developer writing Cocoa uh, or WinForms. Wow. So head to github.com. Uh, slash jobs. Actually, it's jobs.github.com, so I apologize about that. Go ahead and uh, check that job out. We'll put this uh, link in the show notes to this job. Who else we got? We also have something from Rockmount. Have you heard of Rockmount? I have not. Rockmount is this, uh, they're, they're reinventing the browser, so it looks a little bit like Chrome. It has some of the same kind of UI. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yes. it's pretty intense. Like They're doing some really cool stuff with it. I mean, I haven't played with it myself yet, but uh, it's got a lot of people excited. But they're they're reinventing the browser for how people use it on the web today. And they're looking for an, an engineer to be an integral part of their team, uh, help them put uh, streamlined development in process uh, with awesome developer tools and uh, build the process to automation. So the, the position they're actually trying to fill is a build, merge, DevOps engineer. So if you're one of those kind of people... Head to jobs.github.com or go to changelog.com forward slash jobs and or see the show notes, the best and most extensive show notes in the world. Would you consider yourself a developer or engineer, Adam? Definitely a developer, and I'm not an engineer. I think to be an engineer, you have to wear a hard hat. 
And uh, is it yellow? Probably, yeah. With a big GitHub Octocat on the side. That's right. That would be an awesome one. Yeah, that would be tight. They should sell us the, at, the, uh, at the shop. Well, Yehuda's highly entertaining. Should we get to it? Let's do it. We're joined today by Yehuda Katz, big name in the Ruby community. For the few folks uh, in the Ruby community that may not know who you are, and maybe uh, for the guys in the, the Python and other circles, why don't you introduce yourself and just kind of give you a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. So um, my name is Yehuda. I've been doing uh, programming work-ish for about five years. Uh, most of that time has been some combination of Ruby and JavaScript work. Um, Started out mostly with JavaScript, but quickly got into Ruby and uh, joined the Rails core team a couple of years ago after about a year and a half of work on Merb, which was a project that got merged into Rails. Uh, joined the jQuery team about four years ago and just joined the Sprout core core team. So um, essentially my work historically has been web technologies, doing things with the web stack, and I've sort of moved around a lot of different parts of that. And these days I'm focusing a lot on JavaScript the last couple of years, I focused a lot on Ruby, but I use both technologies pretty much all the time. So uh, I guess moving from jQuery to, to Sprout Core, does that uh, go against the grain a little bit? Um, so actually, not really. Um, I should give a little background. So Carl and I, uh, Carl works, worked on Rails 3 with me and now works for this new company that I'm at called Strobe. Um, we actually had started looking at building our own framework for doing mobile stuff, um, mainly because we didn't really know what was out there and it looked like there wasn't a lot of good solutions. And we had spent a bunch of time thinking through some of the problems and, and we put together some code. And um, I saw that Charles, uh, who started Sproutcore, had left Apple and he wrote this blog post that essentially said uh, technologies in this space really need to be free and open source. And not only that, but the tooling around it needs to be open source. And uh, people who are trying to essentially get uh, build things... Um, and make their business model licensing, uh, licensing of software, aren't really getting it. And that really resonated with me. It was sort of the same thing that I felt when I was building this other framework with Carl. Um, we called it Momentum. That's lost the history, I guess. Um, and, I, and when I pinged uh, Charles, one of the things I was definitely concerned about since I was a member of the jQuery core team was whether or not it was going to be okay. And what I learned quickly was that uh, Sproutcore had recently sort of switched over the entire view layer to use jQuery. So before I even joined, the entire view layer of Sproutcore uses jQuery. And what, what's important is that Sproutcore itself is really just about providing abstractions for the model and controller layers, um, acknowledging at this point that jQuery is basically the standard library for the things that are the view layer. So if you're building, uh, if you're doing a lot of DOM work, you should use jQuery. And Sproutcore agrees with that ass assessment. So... It's more about like adding things, um, adding more abstractions. It's not really about competing with jQuery. You know, one of the abstractions that Rails had early on was, um, I guess, RJS templates and things of that sort. And there tends to be, a, I guess, a subset of the Ruby community that really doesn't want to touch JavaScript. How is Sproutcore familiar for the Rubyist that wants to come into uh, a JavaScript framework? Um, so I'll actually not answer your question. Um, but I'll, I'll try to answer it. I'll, I'll try to answer the spirit of your question. So <laughs> I, actually, one thing I think people get into trouble with when they uh, start looking at quote-unquote MVC frameworks, Sproutcore is a quote-unquote MVC framework, um, is that there are a lot of people, myself included, really learned the MVC pattern in Rails. 
And the MVC pattern in Rails is trying to deal with the fact that even though the MVC pattern was built for a stateful world in HTTP, we only have a stateless world. So it's sort of a modification of the traditional MVC pattern. And it's actually a simpler version of it, right? Because you're not really worrying about state. You're just worrying about, I have a request, and you are dumping out a big glob of something, and that gets rendered by somebody else. Um, and the amount of state that is, that is involved can vary, but relative to like a rich GUI application, it's actually very small. And I think there's a lot of people out there who, are, uh, who have gotten used to that mode of MVC. They're not, they don't really know any other mode of MVC, and so they're building JavaScript frameworks that essentially emulate the mode of, here is a route, I have gone to the route, now I'm going to create a blob of HTML and insert it into some content area. Um, and I think that actually that is, uh, those things are, while they, they, I think they can, I, I was going to say they're doing a disservice, but I actually don't want to say that. I think they're really good for people who are used to Rails and they want to dip their toes into building applications that live more on the client side. Um, but I think that the more traditional MVC where you have stateful views, you have a controller, you have models, all of this lives in a world that is fluid um, with, with rich interactions that is actually more along the lines of the MVC that you want on the client side. So I think, I guess what, what the easy answer to your question is, uh, people who know Rails will find themselves at home in Sprout Core because it's MVC. But what I, I actually want to not answer that. I actually want to say, don't actually think it's the same MVC. If you try to apply the MVC paradigm that you know from Rails into Sprout Core or Cocoa or uh, Windows <laughs> GUI programming or any kind of rich GUI programming, you're going to... Uh, it's going to be confusing. And I think it's useful to sort of step back and relearn MVC for stateful applications. Yeah, MVC is a pattern that's, that's beyond the web. I guess more where I was going with that was that it's distributed as a gem and has generators so that... Yes. You know. Oh, so uh, in terms of tooling, there's a lot about Sprout Core that's pretty cool. I'll, I can talk about that. Um, so uh, first of all, Sprout Core was originally built as an extension of MERB, which I worked on. Um, it, doesn't, it isn't distributed that way anymore, but it sort of has a heritage of trying to get to a convention over configuration approach, um, which I, I want to get back to in a minute because I think people might, if they try to use it, might be annoyed by me saying that. Um, so it tries to achieve some of the similar approach. It tries to have generators, conventional locations to put files, um, Pretty much all the tooling is written in Ruby, so um, there's a server that runs, and uh, that server run is a Rack application. Um, and actually, something that I think is really interesting is that uh, Rails applications have a development and production mode, and I think it's pretty intuitive to most people who do Rails that there are things that you want. You want things to behave a certain way in development, and you want things to behave a different way in production. Production, you mostly care about performance. In development mode, you mostly care about the speed of development. So like things like reloading are very important to a Rails app in development. In production, you're willing to trade off speed. Uh, a good a, a Sprout Core analogy uh, that's similar is in development, you actually don't want to combine all the files into one file because you want to get errors that have backtraces pointing at the file. Um, in production, you want to combine the files. So it's actually important to have different development and production mode, and the only way you can achieve that is by having something that knows the difference and decides how to serve your page um, differently. Now, the traditional way of handling this is to not have a build tool and sort of manually roll your own development mode and manually roll your own production mode, but that sort of relies on you being um, a one-man bomb squad, right? Figuring out what the right trade-offs are everywhere. And 
just like in Rails where it's actually not good for you to have to think about that, in Sprout Core, we also agree that it's not good to have to think about that. And so there is a server, which a lot of people are put off by um, because they're like, oh, I'm writing JavaScript. I'm used to throwing script tags in. But it gives you the ability to have, the, to have really tightly refined production mode, tightly refined development mode, and not have to think about it at all. Um, and like you said, for uh, people who know Ruby, uh, it's distributed as a Ruby gem. Works kind of the same way as Rails. You do gem install Sprout Core. Uh, Sprout, it, the gem comes with all the code in it that is needed, um, the JavaScript code that is needed, as well as the build tools. Um, and actually, what's cool is that the gem, uh, you can actually have other gems that have other JavaScript code. So uh, there's a company called Eloqua, which is a big Sprocore company, and they have distributed some other libraries as gems. And the Sprocore build tools will try to find other Sprocore gems and make those things potentially available um, to the build process. And this all feeds into um, a larger plan that we have to to sort of make, uh, to create a, a place which is not, there happen to be some Sprout Core gems on rubygems.org, uh, but like here is a repository that is for Sprout Core gems because our build tools are already designed to handle gems essentially containing JavaScript code. And so there, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do um, th that you can already do, right? But um, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can really surface and make visible by creating a gem repository, which is just for Sprout Core gems. A few months back, you uh, you released Handlebars JS September. Um, yep. Since we're talking about views, how does this fit into uh, into Sprout Core? Yeah. So I should actually go back. Um, I I had meant to say that to talk about the convention over configuration. So I think Sprout Core gets a lot of things right um, in terms of convention over configuration and um, gets many things wrong. And a lot of the reason for that is that. Apple did a bunch of work on R&D, essentially, in Sprout Core. And so there's a lot of features in Sprout Core that are, um, for, that are mainly designed for internal Apple apps. And there's, like, some layer of glue code on top that exists inside of Apple that never became part of the open source project. So the underlying code is really powerful. But figuring out how to use it is maybe difficult. And this is especially true. The most clear example of this is the Sprout Core data store, which is, like, this crazy powerful... ORM that's, that's back-end agnostic and does all kinds of cool stuff, but get, figuring out how to write something that just makes an AJAX request to a Rails app and then gets results back and puts it into the data store is a complicated process. And so um, something that I am going to be doing uh, in general is figuring out what the right conventions are. So uh, the clear win in the case of the data, sto data store is to make a higher-level abstraction that deals with making your request to URLs but still making the lower level one available for people who, let's say, want to get their data out of local storage or want to get their data um, from some other mechanism that's not just hit a URL, you will get JSON back, right? So I think it's really good. Like, the first thing I saw when I looked at uh, Sprout Core, a, uh, I guess, a few months ago was the primitives here are pr rock solid and amazing, and the API is uneven. Sometimes the API is really good. Sometimes the API is too confusing. So um, I got into this spiel because you asked about handlebars. So... I actually released Handlebars initially before, or I got started it before I even got involved in Sprout Core, mainly because I actually really liked the ideas of Mustache, but I found that I was constantly um, taking JSON that I put into Mustache and pre-processing it. Because Mustache, in Mustache, you're always in a context, and if you want to get something from another context, you can't. So what people will usually do is they'll go in, and if they want something from the root 
of the JSON document to be available to a child of the root, they'll go and copy that element in, and then it will be available when you're in that context. Um, Handlebars does a lot of things, but probably uh, the two reason, the two motivators were um, make it possible to use to make to use arbitrary paths. So instead of you are inside of a document which has a list of posts and it has uh, you know, it's, it's a it's a blog post which with a list of comments, right? And uh, the blog post has a title and a body, and the comments have you know also a title and a body and an author, right? Um, I want to make it possible if you're inside of a comment to go dot dot slash title and you get the you get the post's title. Um, and you can do that from anywhere. So I added support for arbitrary paths. Um, I also are added support for parameters and helpers. So um, helpers can can take these paths as well. So you can start passing context into other helpers. Um, and I made the probably the most important thing and like the mo the main motivating factor actually was that block helpers. So hand, uh, Mustache has a concept of block helper where if you do pound and then a thing that's a function, you get the body from the inside as a parameter. And um, what I did uh, is that instead of getting just the body, the rendered body, you get a function which you can call with a context and then that body will get executed as though it had had that context in the first place. So it, le and, so it lets you do things like pound list some context and then you can in your helper you can iterate over that list and then you know say ul plus and then iterate over the list and then for each item call the function with the item and then concatenate right so um, it's it lets you do much more powerful much more powerful block helpers more along the lines of what you can do in with a rails block helper um, which is actually the motivation and uh all these things together actually make it so that you rarely have to do any kind of crazy pre-processing on your JSON. You can actually, you still get the benefit of mostly logicless templates, right? So you, there's no arbitrary code in the template at all. But what there is is a lot more powerful mechanism for moving around. So um, essentially, I did this sort of because I liked mustache and didn't and wasn't. Uh, happy with mustache. So I, I like the core idea, like the principles. If you're going to write down design principles of mustache, I would have agreed with them. But I felt like you could push the envelope a little further without violating the principles of mustache. Um, and then when I joined Sprout Core, probably one of the biggest problems that I saw um, in terms of API was that I, the way that you make HTML in Sprout Core is by creating strings and uh, concatenating them onto a, a context. And while I think that is very useful for small, like, like a checkbox, sure, you should do that, making a template is a lot of overhead. If you're going to build something where you have like a, your, a big view that you're going to build yourself, like if you're going to build a blog, you might have two views, so a list of the, like a sidebar and a main body area. And those things are templates. Those things are not like little views that you'd want to just build up HTML strings. Um, so I want, so I, I thought about using handlebars for that. And then the most exciting thing about what I'm trying to do is that I've, the thing that really frustrated me about mustache is it seems like you have all the information that you need in a mustache template to update things as things change. So let's say you put in that blog post and then the original object, so the original body changes for some reason, or you add a comment. So you, let's say you add a live comment. Um, to the comments array that you originally used to populate the template. Um, it seems like 
because of the fact that these templates are logicless and are all talking about like context, it seems like you could just somehow figure it out and update it without having to go magically update it. And the way sort of most people do this, the way like Backbone does this, is it just essentially assumes that you're just going to re-render the whole thing. Which, again, it's more like how Rails works, right? It's more like we're going to take a huge blob of HTML and replace the old blob of HTML. But that's not really great. You, ideally, you want to be able to update little pieces and not have to update huge amounts of HTML. So, um, and so it's frustrating that it looks like we have all the information we need, but really nobody does it. And so uh, what I'm currently working on adding to Handlebars is a bind helper, which lets you essentially say, bind this, this area of code here to this piece of the context that I'm in right now. Um, and so it the way it will work will require some kind of object binding system. Um, Sproutcore has a really, really, really good one that is probably like the best way to do it. Um, jQuery has jQuery data link, which is less powerful, but will also be, ab be able to be used. Um, and basically the idea is that as you're creating your template, you can either make static content or you can say, this chunk of code here is actually bound to this object. And by the way, if the object changes and um, handlebars doesn't care how it changes. Handlebars just will essentially invoke a method that lets the data linking system set, it, set this up. But by the way, when this changes, come back and update this code. Hmm. Um, so I think, like, to me, there, there are things that we can do in JavaScript um, to improve, to make things more, more stateful uh, and make, make things less about, like, throwing huge blobs of code on without really, without forcing people to think about a lot of boilerplate, right? In this case, you're essentially saying, let's say this is the blog's title. If you update the blog's title, you have essentially already wrote the code. So this is sort of like a lot, what a lot of people like about Rails, right? Um, it feels like you don't have to say the same thing a lot of times. And that's what I'm trying to get at with handlebars is make it possible to do things so that it's not just this huge blob of code of HTML, but you get, but at the same time, you don't, you can treat it like it is. You can almost think about it like I'm just writing a template with a blob of HTML. I'd like to switch gears back to, to Rails for a moment. Um, in, in Rails 3, so before we get to, to Rails 3.1 and, and the roadmap, in, in Rails 3, what are the big chunks of um, maybe standalone pieces of functionality that maybe together are greater than the uh, the sum of Rails 3, like Bundler and, and some other things that went into the project? Um, sure. Uh, so there's, there's a few good answers here. Um, probably my favorite thing that we did in Rails 3, or favorite two things, are uh, we completely rewrote Action Controller, and we wrote it in a much more modular fashion. And I'm already starting to see a lot of plugins and, and uh, functionality that is existing in the community that's taking advantage of it. So even though when you look at Rails 3, it looks like, oh, it's not, nothing really happened here. It's the same functionality. I guess it's a little better internally. The fact that we essentially went from one huge monolithic object to a bunch of little objects means that it, people are actively being more aggressive about what things they're willing to do because of the fact that there are more cleanly defined objects that are, that are handling things. Um, and more things that are explicit, like you can modify this and we promise to keep this feature available. Um, the other thing that is sort of along the same lines is we completely rewrote RailTize. And that created a, a much better mechanism for hooking into different parts of Rails. Um, so an example of this is like Active Record right now is a standalone gem that has one, uh, a little, a few files that are called the RailTie, 
which is the code that hooks into the rest of Rails. And ActionPack actually doesn't know anything about ActiveRecord. All it knows is that this is exposed some APIs for people to do things like add things to the log, right? So for instance, you have a log and it says model time one second, or hopefully not one second, hopefully like 50 milliseconds or 10 milliseconds, right? And that used to say, if you're using ActiveRecord, do ActiveRecord base dot something, right? It's like this global thing. And uh, now in Rails 3, there's just a, an API for anybody can add stuff to the log. Here's how you do it. And ActiveRecord hooks into that. And the really great thing about this is that there's all these other ORMs like you know, Mon Mongoid and Data Mapper and the SQL ORM and Cassandra Object. And they can all do the same thing. They can all hook into these, uh, these pieces and change action pack because they know that this is the API. And they can actually look at Active Record and look at the code that Active Record is using to hook in. So it's not even like there happens to be an API. It's like we have isolated the code in Active Record that actually does that hooking into the API. So I think all these things sound good in theory. What's happening in practice is that people are, the plugin ecosystem is getting a lot more feisty. People are actually writing plugins that in the past people would have been scared of, people would have grimaced at because they would be doing black magic, and now there's not so much black magic, and you can actually do really aggressive things, and I, I, I really like that. I think, I think that that has been the weakest, <laughs> hilariously, right? People say plugins are the biggest strength of Rails. I think that that's true, but I think plugins are also a huge weak point, because uh, every, every upgrade of Rails results in invalidating a huge amount of plugins in very uh, problematic ways, and I think... While we didn't, we don't, Rails 3 is not a panacea for that problem, Rails 3 really, it creates a much more solid ground for people to go and, and aggressively do things with Rails. And, and I'm, we're already starting to see some of the benefits of that. What's on tap in Rails 3.1? Um, okay, so uh, probably the biggest, uh, the most important conceptual change in Rails 3.1 is that we've gone from having a bunch of caching ideas that you can use in various situations to pushing a lot more towards using the HDB caching system. So um, we've had for a very, very long time helpers that let you set e-tags, that let you set the last modified headers. Um, but people couldn't really make use of those things. People, those things were not very useful, except that people who came back to the same page from the same browser maybe got a faster page response time. Um, what we were do the biggest change in Rails 3.1 um, in terms of the philosophy of Rails is that we've gone to using HTTP caching as sort of like the major caching technique that, that people will use. So if you say, for instance, um, Rails has this feature that where you can say stale question mark and then pass an active record object, and that will basically tell you whether or not, based on the headers that have been pulled in, whether or not you need to serve the new thing. So Basically, you say if stale, e-tag, and then like some post, and then have a block, right? And basically what that will mean is if it's stale, do this stuff. Otherwise, no, just say it's fine. Um, and obviously, there, we need to write a lot of good documentation about how this works. But basically what this means is that now you can do that same thing, and, you, and Rails has a built-in HTTP caching layer that will also handle the, do the right thing in terms of... Um, in terms of like page caching or action caching. So we're not really taking away the old features, although we're pluginizing some of them. But we're, we're, it's sort of the same, 
and I'm actually doing a really bad job of explaining it. I could do better by showing code. Um, but it's sort of a similar conceptual shift as the conceptual shift to REST in the first place. It's the flip side, right? Uh, Rails 1.2 introduced REST as a request paradigm. Uh, Rails 3.1 introduces REST as a response paradigm. And while I think, I think it will probably have a lot, meet with a lot of the same reaction as the original REST uh, for requests met with, which is, I don't understand the point of this. Uh, this seems to add complexity. But I think that it will result in a lot of the same benefits of simplifying how people think about applications, making everything using the, use the same concepts, um, and making it possible for Rails itself to start funneling things through, this, through the same concepts, right? So uh, the fact that there's REST as a request paradigm means that there's all these things, like you can render an object, you can redirect to an object, you can link to an object, you can make a form for an object, right? These things actually come out of the fact that Rails uses requests, uh, REST as a request paradigm. And I think that as we move forward, we'll have a lot of the same epiphanies in terms of the response as we use HTTP and REST as a response paradigm. Um, so it's hard for me to sort of give you a big, uh, a big blazing, here are, here are the big wins. It's sort of more like we are using the right architecture and we believe that it will result in good things. Um, and then the other really big 3.1 feature is that we're getting um, asset compilation into the sort of the normal path of Rails. So you can obviously install uh, SAS now or, um, or Compass or things like this or, and, or, or Sprockets and, Rail, and they can interact with Rails and result in some compilation of your CSS. Rails 3.1 makes that a first-class concept. So in the same way that you can have, you know, post.html.erb, you can have post.js.erb or post.js.coffeescript or uh, post.css.scss or post.css.sass. Um, and basically taking the whole asset chain and making it like the rest of Rails, uh, making it a first-class app concept. Um, so that's really exciting. It's actually been really hard to get it to think about how to make it work. I think uh, a lot of the motivation actually was to make things work correctly on read-only file systems like Heroku. Um, and when you start thinking about solving this problem for everyone who uses Rails as opposed to the people who opted into the specific feature, it becomes really hard. Um, and there's a lot of weird edge cases, little edge cases, and uh, probably my least favorite thing about all this is that almost nobody who uses Rails relative to the whole population. It actually is like a sysadmin and it's going in and modifying their Nginx, right? So I think a lot of people listening to this podcast probably are doing that, but most people who use Rails are not actually doing that. So if we had a good solution that required that people go and modify something about their deployment, uh, that would obviously, that would not be okay. So we, we need our solutions to actually work totally inside of Rails. And that has been some, somewhat of a challenge, but it's, a, I think, a good constraint. It makes us really think about how to build uh, the tools that we're building in a self-contained way and in a way that pretty much everyone who uses Rails can take advantage of and get benefit from. There probably will be some things where um, if you actually go and modify your Nginx, you might get better benefits, but the goal is to make it so that no one has to do that, and it still works. How far does the format support go for that asset compilation is it a public API I can tap into to support future formats? Uh, yeah, so actually the really cool thing about it is that it uses exactly the same um, API as regular template handlers. So um, you could theoretically do foo.js.haml, although that wouldn't actually make any sense. Um, but ERB, for instance, will be using exactly the same 
template handler as the regular URB template handler in the same context. So it's just it's basically just a regular a regular page. And if you want to do CoffeeScript, you would essentially look at the 20 template handlers that exist and write a CoffeeScript compiler that comply with that interface. You mentioned uh, SAS and Compass uh, as it relates to Rails 3.1 and the support for that, but uh, I'm curious as uh, what your opinion is of SAS, Compass, Haml, things like that, and what they've done for the front end. Uh, sure. So SAS and Compass actually... Um, We've been going back and forth on this, but there's a pretty good chance that we'll have built-in support for SAS in the same way that we have built-in support for ERB and, um, and Builder. And the reason for that is that SAS, and specifically SCSS, really sticks out as the best compilation tool chain for Ruby that exists for CSS. SCSS, I don't know if people know this, but SCSS is a 100% compatible superset of CSS. So if you take a CSS file and put it into SCSS, it is guaranteed to continue to work. Um, that is actually not true about the less project. Um, it kind of, they want it to be true and they, they market it as being true, but there's a whole bunch of edge cases that, that break. And so the fact that SCSS is a, can take in an input of any CSS file and give you the same output means that it's possible for Rails to sort of make it the default because it's kind of a no-op if you don't use the features, right? But then we can start doing things like add spriting support, which we're going to ship with Rails 3.1, that now you just modify, it's sort of like an extension to CSS. You can modify your CSS file, and now, boom, you have spriting support. Uh, you want, you don't want to have to, you know, you, you want to use CSS3 border radius, and you don't want to have to worry about the exact syntax. Boom, there's a, uh, there's a helper that you can use that comes with Compass that lets you do that. So... I'm actually, I think that CSS, the SCSS in particular is really exciting for that reason. I think the fact that you can sort of use your regular CSS and then opt into features as needed and the features look like regular CSS. Um, they've actually given a lot of thought to, fe to making the features look like CSS but not potentially conflict with future CSS features. Um, and I, I think that's great. I think Haml is sort of more of a mixed bag. I personally like Haml. I use Haml a lot. But I get why some people want to see the HTML in front of them while they're designing. Um, there are times when I'm doing simple things where I feel that that is the case. Um, yeah, I agree. The I, there's times I'm writing Haml and HTML, and it's it's like I'd like to write the the HTML in some cases, and that's kind of when you dip down into a filter. But Haml, exactly. you know, if you're dealing with conflicts and end tags, and you know, exactly. in the ERB context, there's lots of issues when you deal with conflicts that. Like today, I spent 45 minutes dealing with the conflict because I was working in ERB, and I was like, this yeah, sucks. I, I agree. I think um, that's probably the best thing about Haml is that it makes it so that like grabbing a bunch of lines from, from a Haml template are, is mostly like an atomic operation. And that is not the case about ERB. So I, in general, I like Haml, um, mainly for that reason. I like being able to copy and paste like chunks of code into somewhere else and know that I didn't, by mistake, forget an end tag, and now I'm screwed. Um, I th the thing is that SCSS is, is a bigger deal, though, because SCSS fundamentally transforms how CSS works. Um, it lets you actually write functions in CSS, and that is a big deal. I think um, that's something that, is, that everyone knows is missing from CSS, and it does it in a way that feels like CSS. So I think that's good. That's like a bigger win to me than, than Hamill. You mentioned less um, in your answer there, too. So it sounds like you're leaning more towards SAS and specifically the SCSS syntax that they have over less. Is that true? Uh, so I have to be honest. I personally am extremely biased towards projects that have been around for a while 
um, specifically projects that have been around for a while are under active maintenance and have gone through um, a bunch of upgrades to the underlying technology. So people who have successfully upgraded their stuff from uh, Ruby 1.8 to Ruby 1.9, from Rails 2 to Rails 3, um, that gives me a lot of confidence that they'll be around for a while, that they'll keep going. Um, and I generally tend to be a naysayer when it comes to the new hotness um, because, like with less, uh, these things oftentimes end up getting abandoned when the guy who wrote them gets tired of it. That actually happened with Les. He decided, like, oh, I would rather write a JavaScript version of this so less RB is now abandoned. And I feel that happens often, and I, I, I'm willing to stick with something that is a little less shiny but more maintained, even with all its, with all its flaws, than jump right on the new thing with the new syntax that is maybe has a better API but hasn't proven itself in the market yet. So I know, uh, I think it's good that some people don't do that, right, because somebody needs to test it out. But if, I, if you were, if, to the world, if you're building something that's stable, I would give, I would not go with the way that Rubyists oftentimes evaluate these things, which is sort of like, what is the best possible API here? I would more, I would say, I want a good API, but I would promote stability and long-term maintainership and ability to get past milestones in the underlying technologies above where most people normally think of them as. So... The reason that, I mean, nobody should use less RB. It's actually abandonware now. But even back before it was abandonware, I would not have used less RB, less the Ruby version of less, because it just ha it wasn't, it hadn't actually, it's not about maturity. It's not about, like, does it have bugs. It's more about, like, the maintainers haven't really proven themselves yet. So the last uh, couple of years of your life, you've been working on Rails 3, Handlebars, uh, Thor, Bundler. Uh, I'm just curious when you actually sleep in all that time with all that work you're doing. Um, I try to sleep. Um, actually, uh, the answer to this is interesting, which is I spend a lot of my time trying to think of ways to, to help other people do work. So um, obviously I can write a lot of code. That's great. But I think it's, I, I'm more effective when I'm helping other people uh, write code. So a lot of my work on Rails 3, more than like half of my time probably, was spent cultivating and nurturing new Rails core team members. Um, so uh, I worked really closely with Aaron Patterson, with Santiago Pastorino, with Jose Valim, with um, Xavi Arnoria, some and a bunch of other people that have started since Rails 3 to cultivate them. And uh, so I, I end up looking more productive than I actually am. Um, and, and a lot of my projects, like Handlebars.js, I have to give uh, credit to Alan who basically picked up the project after I spiked it out and uh, got it through sort of its teenage years. Um, and uh, with, with Thor, uh, Jose Valim has been sort of uh, maintaining it for a while. So I, I think that's something that more people, as you become somebody who gets more productive, you could obviously keep building everything yourself, but I feel like there's a lot of utility in, in nourishing other people. And that's something that takes your time. I think... It can, it can be draining, and it takes up time, but it's much more productive in terms of, like, total output than trying to do everything yourself. And you have to, you have to give up thinking that things, the things you're going to create are going to be perfect because, obviously, you're not writing them anymore. What were the big lessons that the MERB-Rails merger taught you? Um, actually, the thing that I just said before, which is that you sh people should give more credit to things that are mature. Um, so I think I, I think Merv was on a good path, and we would have it would have been good. Um, but I think that Rails, like things like Ruby Gems and RDoc, 
and uh, and and Sass and Hamill, right? These things that have been around for a while. There's a lot of wisdom in these things, and it's very popular for people to you know sort of say, "Oh, I can rewrite that in a weekend," and they'll go start cranking it out, and. They don't think about the fact that Ruby Gems runs on every platform that Ruby runs on, right? They don't think about the fact that JRuby has spent a lot of time making Ruby Gems run on for JRuby. They think, oh, I can imagine writing something that will work for my exact use case in a day. So, and then they go do it and release it. And the Ruby community is a fickle bunch and will sort of hop on the, that thing very quickly. The guy, because he only did it in a weekend, actually was never committed to maintaining it in the first place. Um, Bundler was actually in a similar situation. I, Bundler is, this, is really robust. We spent a lot of time on it. They're occasionally competitors, but they're, they're not serious competitors, right? They're not people who are really committed to making it work on every platform. Um, they're not people who are committed to, to really maintaining it. And so I guess what I learned from the merge was that people should give more credit to, to this. People should give more credit to the wisdom in existing code. They should be willing to spend more time refactoring code. I think people... I think in general, people are much more willing to start a whole brand new project than to refactor existing code, and they underestimate the amount of, of um, I guess, wisdom that is in the code bases that exist in the world right now, especially if those code bases run on a lot of platforms. I think that that's an underestimated problem, making your code work on Windows. So if something works on Windows, you should probably refactor rather than rewrite it unless you want to be dealing with Windows bugs for the next several years. So you're pretty accomplished in both the JavaScript and the Ruby circles. Do you ever cross over and do JavaScript on the server? Um, so actually, uh, I'm actually interested in that. I'm less interested in Node.js, although I've been playing with it a little bit recently, mainly because I think that the case, the cases where um, evented programming on the server is useful is, is a narrower list of cases than people think. So I think, for instance, if you're building a chat server, sure, you should be using Node. I think there are characteristics of JavaScript that make it really good for evented programming. Um, the most important characteristic is that every single function is a, is a closure. So if you define a variable anywhere up the chain, it's going to be available everywhere down. So you can do nested callbacks and things will work. Um, in Ruby, methods don't have that characteristic. They're hard boundaries. And so uh, it, you have to think about things a little bit more. So I definitely I like JavaScript a lot for evented programming, but I think that there's a lot more cases that are not evented than the evented uh, zealots would like to believe. So uh, if you're building a chat server, any, anything involving push, absolutely, I think Node.js is a really good option. Um, where I th- what I think is, is a much more interesting and better use case is um, I've been, so in Handlebars, I've been rewrite, I actually been rewriting it recently um, because I had some issues with the stuff I talked about earlier. And I actually have been using sort of quote-unquote server-side JavaScript tools to develop it because I would rather develop something like Handlebars, which isn't really DOM-bound on the command line using tools I'm familiar with, um, than have to fire up a browser and like look at DOM nodes that tell me whether my tests are passing. Um, and so uh, I'm really interested in Ruby Racer, which is... Uh, it's a Ruby binding to V8. It's a really amazing Ruby binding to V8, actually. I managed to get the handlebars QUnit test running through our spec with it. So <laughs> crazy, like the technique I use is pretty crazy, but it essentially it boils down to the fact that you can expose Ruby procs into JavaScript as functions, and then you can capture functions in Rubyland and call them. And there's 
So I was able to sort of expose functions into JavaScript, like the test function in QUnit, which would capture the function, and then I was able to have RSpec run it with the proper name. So I have RSpec output for my QUnit. Uh, I think things like that are really exciting. Um, being able to take server-side JavaScript like V8 and run it inside of contexts that we're more familiar with. Yeah, we covered Ruby Racer on um, episode 023. Charles recently wrapped uh, handlebars in um, the Ruby Racer and has handlebars RB, which is not a port. It's just a yep, wrapping. I thought right? that I actually really liked that approach. Um, I wouldn't mind if someone did a real Ruby port of it, but I like the fact that it's so easy. I mean, I, I worked for a long time on another project called Johnson, which is a Spider Monkey binding, and honestly, Spider Monkey is just a bigger mess than V8, but. Uh, I ran gem install Ruby, the Ruby racer and it actually built without any complaints and it never seg faulted and all the bindings work perfectly. I get you know, JavaScript. My backtraces have JavaScript in them. Uh, it, it's just really, it feels really solid. I mean, I, I was looking at the code. Um, there's a lot of Ruby code there, so I don't, I don't really know if it's really solid. It looks good, but it feels really good compared to other approaches that I've used in the past. Thoughts on CoffeeScript? Um, so... I feel like one thing that the browsers need to do in order to make things like CoffeeScript viable is make it easier to tell the browsers the source of compiled files. So prob the reason I would not use CoffeeScript today um, is because there's no runtime with a debugger that runs CoffeeScript. So um, you have to rely on the fact that the CoffeeScript code the emitted JavaScript code is close enough to the CoffeeScript code that if you have a bug, you can sort of work your way back and figure out where the problem is. And JavaScript is already hard enough to debug. It's compared to Ruby, it's like a nightmarish debugging environment that adding that level on does not seem good to me. Um, I think that problem is actually solvable if JavaScript, uh, if like browsers provided a commenting format that let you say, these three lines here came from this line in this source file. Uh, then you would actually get the backtraces could contain information about the original source file, which also, by the way, would be really useful for minification and concatenation, right, so that you get real backtraces. Um, it's something that I keep meaning to sort of propose to people in the browser world. But I think until something like that happens, you end up with it becomes really too hard to figure out what the generated source is. Um, on the flip side of that, I actually I like uh, the CoffeeScript syntax, in general, I'm not a huge fan of whitespace-sensitive uh, programming languages, but that's not really, that doesn't matter to me. I, CoffeeScript is pretty nice, um, and I, if there was a debugging environment that made sense and didn't cause me to gnaw my eyes out, I would probably give it a serious attempt. Got a series of A, B, or none of the above questions for you. Bash or Z shell? Uh, ZSH. TextMate, Vim, Emacs? Uh, Vim. MVim. jQuery or uh, prototype? <laughs> jQuery. <laughs> this is where we turn it upside down and ask you what's on your open source radar. So what of your own projects or other things out there have got you excited that you want to hack on in your spare time? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I'm work actually working on a lot of things. Uh, probably the, the things that are on my radar for working on are mostly documentation. So I have actually cranked out a whole bunch of stuff, and other people have as well. And um, I feel like there's a lot of missing hidden gems in the stuff I've built, like Thor in particular, that 
if I just spent like a week or two weeks making a, a site that was like the Bundler site, I think it would unlock a lot of interesting possibilities. So, um, and I think in general, I'm pretty conscientious about documentation, but I, I end up creating a lot of things that don't have good enough documentation. Um, I'm also working on a whole bunch of uh, Ruby stuff um, with Carl for the projects we're working on at Strobe. Um, there's a project called Picard.java, which is a, um, an asynchronous uh, web server, which includes a better, like an asynchronous middleware API, which is pretty nice, that we're maybe going to use internally and ha has already sort of been released, um, and a whole bunch of other things along those lines that are more for internal use and people can peek at them. Um, so I get, I guess there's a, there's a whole bunch of random things, but nothing really new. Uh, there's no, there isn't any, aren't any projects that I've, so, that have sort of piqued my interest, but actually I'm lying. libgit2 looks really awesome. <laughs> yeah, so, so I should backtrack. So until like two days ago, I was mostly sort of, uh, dotting my I's and crossing my T's on my own projects, uh, with documentation, um, stuff like that. Uh, libgit2 looks really interesting. I think the thing that's great about it is that I think it opens the door for people to build more interesting things on Git. Um, consider this a challenge the world. It would be great if there was a Git library that worked with arbitrary backends. So right now, Git, the Git protocol is, based, is really simple. It's a key value store, smart, etc. There's no reason why you couldn't put the Git protocol on like Redis or MongoDB or React or something like that. Um, but the way that the Git libraries have been organized until now made it a hard task. The uh, libgit2 would make it an easier task because even though it's still sort of oriented around the file system, it's, it's first of all, better organized, and second of all, it's, it's actually something you can create as an open source project and then have a linking exception to their GPL license so you can use it in something proprietary so people might actually be able to spend company time on it. So... Um, that's actually really exciting to me. It's something, I, I read a bunch of the code when it came out. looks really interesting. And I, I'm just in general excited about the fact that you, like, there might be a way to gem install something on Windows and actually have it do Git things without it relying on some Git binary that it was installed in your system. That's really cool. Well, no, Adam wants to organize a Houston meetup for Thor. He loves this project, so... He's dying to know the state of Thor. Yeah, about a year ago, I fell in love with it. Well, you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned it as a hidden gem, though, so that's that's really important because it's, uh, I've used it for about a year. I, I talked to other Rubyists and not many people know about it, so you mentioned it as a hidden gem, something you want to document. What, what are, where is Thor at right now? What are you doing with it? Sure, so um, Thor was actually originally created as, uh, because I created the TextMate gem, which lets you install TextMate things from the command line and will automatically reload and whatever, and it was a binary that looked a lot like the Git binary, so it was like text made install blah, text made search blah, right? And um, that's actually really common, and I found it at the time really frustrating to do option parsing and dealing with you know shifting things off argv, and I think that's still how a lot of people do it. And I was like, this is a really easy pattern. In the same way that like Rails is a really easy pattern, there's a controller, there's a bunch of methods, there are actions, have a nice day. Um, the problem that's being solved is a really easy pattern, and the pattern is the pattern is is illustrated as there is a class like a Rails controller, and every uh, subcommand like you do like uh, bundle install right 
bundler uses it, and the install command is a method called install, and you can, like with rake, you can specify how the command should work. So you can specify what options are available, what types those options are, um, whether they're mandatory, optional, what their defaults are, things like that. And it will automatically generate a help command. So you can say, like, bundle help, and that output is actually just auto-generated from, um, from Thor. So that was sort of the initial motivation, was like, it's really hard to write command line tools that behave like this, like, like Git. And I wish it was easier. Um, since then, though, it was, it's been used by a lot of projects, like the Engineer Gem, uh, Rails generators use it as the base. The um, Bundler uses it. So it's been used by a lot of these fairly large projects with advanced CLIs, which added a lot of features. So Thor itself got a lot of features just because people were using it to build advanced CLIs and they were running into issues. So Thor can do a lot of stuff. Um, but we added these features mainly because, like, engineer was like, hey, we want subcommands. So we, like, sort of added subcommands. Or, hey, we want, uh, you know, we want help to be more easily overridable. Or we want colors, right? So all these features got added. Um, when we did the Rails generators, it's, we, we want some ways to do file manipulation and sort of ge normal generation tasks. So we added those features. Um, and so there's all these features in, in Thor that are sort of documented in the readme but aren't. There's no real sort of big picture story. Like, here's how Thor works. Here's what Thor is for. And even though it has a ton of features that make it really easy to just crank out a CLI. So, um, and we also have been talking about it wrong. I, Thor, the, like, little, the, the quick pitch for Thor is Thor is a framework for building CLIs. It's a toolkit for building CLIs. And if you have a CLI to build, even if it's really simple, it's a good idea. If it's really complex, it's a good idea, too. And I'm, like, I really... I've heard this like from a bunch of people recently, like, so I, I either I really love Thor or so I was thinking about building a CLI and I looked at Thor and it looked really complicated. I don't really know how to use it. And so I want to take the time to show that there's like a really simple way of using it and then there's really advanced powerful features for doing anything that you might want. Like here's an example, you can like there's shell.ask in it. So you can like essentially like highlines ask, right? You can say like ask the user for input and get a value back, right? So I, that's not particularly hard, but it's like another thing you don't have to think about doing, which is like common when you're building CLI. So if you spend a lot of time on GitHub like Adam and I do, you see two types of projects over and over again, dot .files and Thor tasks. Seems like everybody's got their own batch of Thor tasks in their GitHub profile. Yeah, so um, Thor was also built as like a rake replacement plus a Saki replacement. So Saki is something that um, Chris Monstrous wrote a long time ago that let you install rake tasks into your system. And I thought that was pretty cool at the time. So I made it possible to install a Thor file from a remote system or from your system into the global space, basically. And then um, you can run like Thor minus capital T, and it will give you a list of the namespaces that are available in your system. And I think there are some number of people out there who have uh, taken to that. And so obviously that won't work if you have a bunch of files that are all distributed in a bundle, right, which is common for a CLI. But if you're building, you know, a simple script, like a friend of mine recently built a script that lets you go into any file, any directory and ask for the most recent 10 commits, pick two of them, and it will give you, will open the diff of those commits in TextMate, right? So that's a pretty self-contained script. And that's something that makes sense to sort of stick on a gist and let people say Thor install that gist and then use it. Actually, how we do our post to the changelog, we can uh, have a Thor script. You can just pass it to GitHub repo and it pulls down the metadata and pre-populates a template. It's pretty nifty. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. You're a hard man to catch up with. I'm glad we finally got you nailed down and uh, 
had a chance to chat. Yep. Thank you very much. It was great being here.